Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means, what makes a good trader, and uh, and hopefully tie that into the inflation markets. But uh, first, a word from our sponsor, as always at the top. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a new ETF provider offering alternative investment strategies with full transparency, daily liquidity, and low costs. Some of their hedge fund style strategies include managed futures, commodity trend following, steepener trades, and more. If you are an individual investor or an RIA, you will likely find a compelling alternative investment from Simplify that can help improve your portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us. And you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. So you can get an alternative investment strategy in an ETF wrapper, and that's what Simplify does. And thank them, as always, for uh, for sponsoring. Um, and uh, and one more preliminary, and that is the, the trivia question. And the trivia question today, which I'll answer at the end, as always, the first country in the world to issue postage stamps. It's also the only country in the world that doesn't use a national name on its stamps. What country is that? And some of you are probably listening from that country now. But uh, the first country in the world to issue postage, postage stamps and, and one that does not put a national name on its stamps. Okay. Now, I guess there's, there's, there is one more preliminary, um, and that, that doesn't have to do with the main topic today, um, but it's, there was another article out that I, I want to make a brief comment on, uh, another article about price fixing or price, um, um, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, price controls, um, and about how great they are and that, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, much maligned but they're actually quite good. Um, the article was in the New Yorker. It was entitled, What If We're Thinking About Inflation All Wrong? Now, I won't spend a lot of time talking about the article other than to say this. Um, people who think that price controls work don't understand the function of price. They don't understand the price system, where price comes from. There is no honest history out there about broad price controls working ever, except in the narrow sense that official prices stop rising because, after all, they're defined as not rising, and the ancillary costs like shortages aren't measured in, in that fixed price. I continue to worry about the fact that these articles keep popping up. Uh, is it a coincidence? I Actually, you can listen to my podcast, episode 37 from last year, uh, it was called Bad Idea of the Year, Wage and Price Controls, and I go into great detail on this. But it, it, it does concern me um, that maybe maybe there's a lot more uh, testing of this idea than we really should actually have. Okay, so then on to the main, main event. I've known a lot of good traders in my day, and, um, and, and weirdly... I've been on a couple of podcasts over the last six months where they asked me questions about what makes a great trader and, you know, or a good investor, which there's some trader, some of the, some of the same kind of answer. And, um, and I really, you know, I always, 
I guess I, I always answer it focusing on kind of one of, of four different elements, but there really are kind of four elements that that I think work together. And the, and the people I've seen who are very good traders, they typically did four things or had four things. First of all, they never got too high or too low. You know, they never got too high when they were winning or too low when they were losing because they understood that, you know, the winning and losing in markets is ephemeral. Um, it's it's transitory in the real sense of transitory. And so you shouldn't get terribly depressed if you're not doing well, unless you're doing something structurally wrong. And you shouldn't get too excited when things are going right because you're just kind of getting lucky. Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing is that good traders always have an, a contingency plan, an exit strategy. I actually, you know, my, my daughter is a... a uh, has her learner's permit right now, uh, her driver's uh, driver's license learner's permit. And and so one of the things I always tell her is that, you know, the most important thing you're doing when you're driving and, and being aware about what's going around you, on around you, is that you always have to be thinking about where you escape to if something goes wrong. So you're on the highway and you see some idiot, you know, blowing up behind you on, on the left-hand side in your rearview mirror and you say, eh, person doesn't look like they know what they're doing. They look a little dangerous. You should also be thinking that, hmm, I can probably escape to my right because there are no cars there or whatever. And so when something happens, you already know where you're going. Good traders do that. When something goes wrong and something occasionally goes wrong, a good trader knows what they're going to do. Um, I can't remember if it was Richard Dennis or some great trader who said, I don't know what the market's going to do, but I know what I'm going to do when the market does what it's going to do. And I think that's, that's an important, um, that's one way of phrasing kind of this, this point. You always have a contingency plan or an exit strategy. The third point is that, and I think this gets overlooked a bunch, um, but mostly the good traders wait and they get a good price to play. Sometimes you hear it said they wait for a fat pitch. You know, the best traders that I have known didn't didn't do a lot day to day. They waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And when they got that fat pitch, then they they swung at it and then they would just jump all over it. Um, and and I think that we think about great traders as just being right a whole lot. Um, and that's not really true. It's just that a really good trader, even if he's right or she's right, um, they don't they don't swing if the price to play makes it difficult so that they could be right and still lose or not get the, the payoff that they want to uh, have. And then finally, uh, good traders are always constantly reassessing their position and sort of asking the question of, of you know, how could I be wrong here? And so you can sort of see, and, and I'm, later I'm going to talk about how, I guess, those last two points, uh, how we see them today sort of in inflation. But you can sort of see why traders take to poker, because those are pretty much the same things you, you would say would make a good poker player. A good poker player always has an even keel, a po you know, someone who goes on tilt um, is not a good poker player. They get, you know... They just get really angry because they had a bad beat or someone is you know playing aggressively at them or whatever, and so they they don't 
you know, they don't stay calm. Um, a good poker player knows what's going to make him wrong about the hand. Gee, I think I've, I've got the good, the, you know, the best hand here. What kind of betting from my opponents would signal to me that I'm wrong and that I should get out? A good poker player always considers the pot odds. It doesn't mean that a good a good poker player who has re- a good read on the other players won't enter a hand or or bet into a hand that that it, maybe he isn't getting the right pot odds. Um, but if the pot isn't isn't paying a good poker player to play a marginal hand uh, or even a moderately good hand, the 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 uh, good poker player will just lay the hand down. And finally, a, a good poker player doesn't get married to a position. They're constantly reassessing. They like this, you know, gee, they, they got pocket rockets. Uh, you know, they, got, they got a pair of aces. Um, and, um, but gee, the betting is not going their way. It doesn't look like, you know, they're not getting the cards on the board that they need. And it looks like maybe someone else is. And they, they get out of the hand, even though they really hate to fold pair of aces, but but they will because they're they're assessing. So importantly, a good poker player, and same with a good trader, but a good poker player doesn't always have to have the best cards or or even to be right more than they're wrong. Of course that helps. It helps that if if you're a, if you are a good trader and you just happen to be right about everything all the time or have a or you're right 60% of the time. Well, that helps, but you can still be a bad trader and, and be right all the time. Um, be, you know, you can get bad pot odds and and uh, and and lose lose a lot of money. And and similarly, you know, with with poker, um, you know, even if you've got the best cards, you can lose a lot of money playing poker. Um, so, so it, it is interesting. I I didn't I didn't. I didn't script this podcast thinking that I would end up talking about the parallelism with poker, but it really is sort of interesting. When I listed sort of those four things that that a good trader has, it really is very similar to what a good poker player has. And maybe it's because I've been reading all the Annie Duke books that it, um, I had that in my head. But anyway, so let's let's look at the current setup in the inflation markets because there's two of these bullets that I think are worth commenting on and, and um, that I want to focus on. Uh, first of all, the... Um, the get a good price to play part, the good pot odds part. Back in 2020, 10-year inflation break-evens. And so just to remind you, or for those of you who are new to the podcast, a break-even is the difference between a the 10-year yield uh, on a regular treasury bond, we call that a nominal bond, and the 10-year yield on a TIPS bond. An inflation-linked bond. So the inflation-linked bond pays you uh, that yield plus actual inflation, whereas the nominal bond pays you that real yield plus expected inflation. And so by comparing those two, we can kind of see what what the bet is. You know, at uh, at what point am I indifferent? Uh, at what point do I break even? What level of inflation do I not care which of those two I had over that 10-year that period or that five-year period or whatever? So in 10, 2020, 10-year inflation breaks uh, dipped to near 50 basis points, one-half of a percent um, at points early in the, in the, uh, uh, in the contagion in, in March and April of 2020. 
um, as the panic started. And even, but even late in the year, when there was much less uncertainty, um, they were at one and a half percent or one and three quarters percent. For most of the year, they were kind of, you know, one one and three quarters or below. And I said at the time, frequently, that year, that even if you don't agree with me that we're going to get inflation, even if you don't agree with me that break evens are going to go higher, um, if you don't, even if you don't believe inflation is coming, um, you still, you still should be long at those prices. Because if, 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 or, or equivalently, if you're not actually buying break-evens, if you're choosing between do I buy nominal bonds, do I buy tips, at the time, there was no question. It didn't matter if you didn't think there was inflation coming. You still should have been buying inflation-linked bonds because the price was incredible. That even if I was wrong and there wasn't any inflation, you just didn't get killed making that decision. But you could easily get killed making making the decision the other way. So even if you thought disinflation was more likely, I still would have preferred the long side because the price was better. Now, today we have 10-year break-evens at 221 and a five-year, five-year forward inflation in the swap market at 2.60. Um, and that's still below levels that prevailed in the first decade or so of the inflation derivatives market in 2003 to 2014 or so. Um, those aren't obviously as amazing as the prices we saw in 2020, but most of the risk, I think, is still on the high side. And uh, I just wrote a blog post about this. Actually, just yesterday, and the blog post is called uh, CPI Swaps Improving? Question mark. Not as significant as you think. That's a June 7th on the inflation guy, uh, dot blog, blog, which is free. Um, but uh, anyway, so, so the price is not a bad price here if, if you want to go long and it's a, it's a, it, it's a difficult price if you wanted to go short, if you think inflation is going to go still lower uh, than people are forecasting you know, and lots lower than the current level. So that addresses the whole, you know, wanting to get a good price to play uh, aspect of this. Um, the, the fourth bullet I mentioned was, you know, a good trader is constantly reassessing. So, so, I really do try to do this quite a bit, and and I because I, I do think it's it's very important, and sometimes we can forget about it. And uh, back when I I wrote daily commentary for Bankers Trust, I would do this once a week. I would take the opposite position, and I say I would say if you don't agree with what I've been saying, how would I enter into this other position? But but more than that, you kind of have to look at well, what could go wrong? And so, you know, right now, I have the thesis that. Inflation is coming down more slowly and being more persistent than is currently priced into the market, and that most than you know more inflation coming down more slowly and being more persistent than most economists say, and and it's probably going to end up being sticky at a higher level than I think most people um, are currently anticipating. Um, so. The question is, what could change that thesis? How could I be wrong? And again, I've always liked asking that question and the related question of how can I take the opposite position? So we currently have money supply declining slowly and money velocity 
rebounding rapidly in a pretty predictable way that I've talked a lot about um, on a, my monthly CPI um, debrief and, and, and actually various other places as well. Um, and moreover, if interest rates are going back to something like the longer term average and the sort of the sustainable longer term uh, interest rate of, you know, four or five percent nominal, if you believe that growth of two, two and a half percent, inflation of two and two and a half percent gives you something like a long term nominal rate of four or five. Um, if that's true, then I'd expect money velocity to also go back to something like the long term normal level, uh, something like we saw 10 years ago or five years ago, not you know, last year. And, uh, and, and if that's true, that's part of what will make inflation sticky. It'll be very hard, even if money supply kind of continues to drip lower, for inflation to go very low if money velocity is continuing to, to, to jump. If I had to pick a place to be wrong with my thesis, that would be it. That would be it. You know, thinking about, about what would happen to money velocity. If the basic monetarist model itself were wrong, then we would have discovered that sometime in the last, you know, 100 years. <laughs> so um, I don't think, and I don't think the money supply is about to collapse. It's been dripping down slowly because that's in the hand of the Fed uh, and they really have no interest in doing that. And and honestly, if there's a risk to to that part of the thesis, it's that money supply stops going down and it goes up instead. So I don't really see money supply suddenly accelerating and plunging. That would be really weird. And so, so that's not really. So the, the two remaining places I could be wrong, and that is the nice thing about the monetarist model, right? It's a very simple thing. You can kind of just break down in terms of an inflation view um, what, you know, what the various pieces, what you think the various pieces are going to do and then, and then think – if at the end you got the bad outcome, what must have, ha what could have happened to make that happen to you? So the two remaining places I could be wrong is that, A, for some reason the, the division of total output, the P and Q side, suddenly becomes more Q and less P, more output and less price. Okay, so our MV side says, okay, we're going to get a total of 7% out of the, nom the nominal GDP is going to go up 7%. And instead of that being 2% growth and 5% inflation, we get 5% growth and 2% inflation. Um, or, you know, 45 and 25 or something like that. Um, that division of how much of the growth in the money supply times velocity, how much of that goes into growth and how much of it goes into inflation is exogenous to the model. You can't cause that to happen in the model. You you you. Whatever's on the left-hand side produces something on the right-hand side. What drives that are things like industrial policy, money illusion, um, if, and you know, one of the things you need if you're seeing rapid money supply growth and you don't see prices go up, it means that you have to have this money illusion, that, that consumers have to see all this money coming into their bank accounts and think that they're actually wealthier rather than thinking, oh, you know, yes, but prices are going to go up. And when the whole crisis started and, and the Fed was really flushing money in, 
it was a little, little unclear as to what would happen. Would consumers say, oh, gosh, this is great. All these, you know, all of these uh, stimmy checks are making me, you know, vastly wealthier. Um, or would they say, yeah, this, I'm, I'm really not getting any wealthier here because prices are going up or they're going to go up and things are hard to get and, and so on. Um, and, and in the event, it was really more of the latter, that people, you know, felt good they were getting stimmy checks. Um, they did change their behavior somewhat because of it. But by and large, people didn't feel like that was like real wealth. Um, they, you know, particularly as they looked around and they looked at prices. Um, now, I did see that, you know, there was, um, you know, I did see some behavioral things in business, you know, where you'd get businesses reluctant to increase prices because they'd, they'd just been told they can't ever increase prices. Um, so early on, it looked like, well, maybe there is some money illusion happening, but but then, you, you know, today you see, these days you see, you know, Procter & Gamble pushing prices higher. You see airlines pushing prices higher without a lot of pushback. So the big businesses anyway seem to understand. And so it, it's hard for me to imagine that P&Q, that that division is going to suddenly, suddenly it's, it's going to be all growth and, and no inflation. So that leaves kind of the possibility that, um, that velocity might not continue rising, beyond the mechanical rebound. The mechanical rebound happened because when we flushed all this money into people's accounts, and so M went up 20-something percent, that was, there was just no way prices could adjust that, that quickly. And so therefore, the only thing that could really happen is mechanically, you know, that got absorbed into money velocity plunging. And I, I likened it um, in prior podcasts to being sort of a spring. And so... You know, there you you if you you have a a trailer attached to your car and uh, but attached by a spring, and suddenly the car starts pulling away. First, the spring stretches before the trailer finally starts to catch up, and eventually it'll it will fully catch up. And so that's kind of what velocity is doing. So there's that mechanical piece, but the question is, is it going to continue rising as as I think uh, it's going to? And that's a place where I have a lot of model risk, if you will. That is, I'm pretty sure I know what's driving money velocity. Um, you know, the money velocity is the inverse of the demand for real cash balances. And so when interest rates go up, people tend to not want to have 0% yielding cash balances. And so they tend to move money faster. And that's how you get velocity. But I don't have any part of the data set. When I look back, and you know, I've got a model that, that has forecasted uh, money velocity pretty pretty well, or at least explained it contemporaneously pretty well. But I don't have any part of that data set where we had declining money supply and rising money velocity of, of any significant amount. So it so uh, yeah, I have to admit that that my my model might not work in that circumstance. I think it will, but I, I don't really know that that's the case. Um, and and it's really hard to observe velocity directly. So it's just possible that I'm wrong there. There are some other people, some well-known, very well-educated people who feel very strongly that velocity is going to continue to, to decline as it has since the early 1990s. I've looked at their arguments and they don't seem to make any sense to me because they're inconsistent with the way I understand velocity to work. But maybe I'm wrong. They're awfully smart, so maybe that's me. And so if I have to look at one place where I might be wrong... Again, this is point four, constantly looking at your position and reassessing what could you be wrong? What should I be watching for? 
that's where I would look. And so, um, and so if I'm wrong about inflation, it's going to, it's going to be that I, it's going to come down to that. So I'm watching money velocity and indications of money velocity very carefully. Now, if M2 suddenly turns and starts heading higher, which is something I think could happen, then it becomes less important that I'm right about money velocity. But right now, that's my vulnerability and that's what I'm watching like a hawk. So if I was on the other side and I wanted to be short inflation because I think that Mike, Mike Ashton is wrong, the inflation guy is wrong about velocity, and so I want to be short inflation, then how would I implement it? Um, so if I am wrong and V is going to stop going up and M is going to keep going down, then that's bad for inflation. But it's really bad for risk assets, and in particular stocks, but also commodities. And, and it's good for bonds, but it's not outlandishly good for bonds, given where bonds are priced. Um, but it's really bad for risk assets. And uh, commodities are already 30% off the highs, and grains and softs and energy are mostly still backward-aided. So shorting commodities at this point is, is, is well, and before, but shorting commodities has been painful and it continues to be painful. I've got 10-year projected real returns from commodity indices at something like 4%, so 4% plus inflation from here, while equities I've got less than 1%. Uh, and the VIX index is also multi-year lows. So if I wanted to bet that I was uh, that I was wrong, if I wanted to put on a bet against my belief about inflation, what I'd do is I would buy equity puts, probably something six months or longer. Uh, because vol, vol is cheap. Uh, that's not a recommendation. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at exactly what structure I'd take and where volatility and the where on the volatility curve is cheaper and how much gamma do I want versus vegan, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's the thought process. If I'm wrong, I might as well be selling the expensive thing that will go down worse if I'm wrong, which would which is equities. Um, and I'd like to access that position by buying something else that's cheap, like volatility so that I get an edge there. And one of the reasons I like that bet is that it might work even if I am wrong about velocity inflation. Equities might go down anyway, and ball is cheap. So, um, and my downside is limited to premium. And so, you know, that's the way, you know, again, back when I was doing this all the time for Bankers Trust, that is, you know, that's what I would do once a week and say, okay, well, let's assume I'm wrong and what's the opposite position. And, and then as you track these things, you find that, that sometimes even when you're right, you still make money on the position that was, um, that uh, you, you structured well against you. Um, hey, there's one last similarity uh, between trading and poker. And, it, and, and that is that it does help to know who the sucker at the table is. When I was the uh, the main market in CPI derivative in the CPI derivatives market back in uh, the mid two thousands, there were certain people that I hated to trade against because I knew that they had customer flows, they had market flows that I didn't see, and so if they were buying, and I was on the the offer side, I just and and so you'd do a trade and then you'd have to back then there wasn't central clearing, so you had to actually give up the name, and so I'd hear that. Um, you know, Lehman was on the buy side. You know, they, uh, Lehman was buying from me, and I'd say, "Oh God, Lehman always has something. They're, they're, they, they, they're seeing something out there." 
And so that I, I, I always hated that because I felt like the sucker at the table. And then there were other people who just always made – they were always wrong. And I won't name names, but they, I just loved having a position against them. And, and there were people – there were other shops that had, you know, great retail distribution. And so, um, you know, I knew that if they came into the inflation derivatives market, it wasn't because they thought I was – off by a basis point, it was because they were making 25 basis points from their customers and they didn't care what the price was that they got their hedge done. And so, so I didn't mind dealing against those people. In fact, sometimes those were extremely lucrative. Um, uh, but anyway, um, if you are selling 10 year break evens at 221 today, or you're buying nominal bonds instead of tips, which, like I said, is the same bet. And you're doing that because your big local bank econ- your local big bank economist or, or the Wall Street Journal or the guy who runs a nominal bond fund, uh, you know, those guys say inflation is going to go back 2%, you know, this year and it's going to stay there and, and you know, maybe, maybe go lower. Then who's the sucker? I mean, I like leaning against those guys. I like leaning against the big bank economists who – you know, are very good at lots of things, but they can't be good at everything. And so they're non-inflation specialists and I am. So I love leaning against those guys. The Wall Street Journal, those guys aren't analysts, they're journalists. And so I like leaning against, you know, a common view that's expressed there. Um, And by the way, no offense to journalists out there, but as a trader, I don't put a whole lot of stock in a a view expressed by a journalist. Um, and the guy who's running a nominal bond fund, uh, I suspect, probably has an axe to grind. and Maybe not, but, um, you know, so those are people who I don't mind having the position against. Um, there are a few people out there who think very, very smartly about inflation, and those are the people I want to try to be on the same side as, and I'm happy to say that at least so far it appears that I am. And that doesn't mean that I'm not the sucker. But I have been playing this game for a while, and I, I think I'm not the sucker. So, okay, now back to the top, and here is the answer to the trivia question. The trivia question, to remind you, was that the first country in the world to issue postage stamps is also the only one that doesn't use a national name on its stamps. What country is that? You know, they recently issued, actually, some with a whole new uh, visage on them uh, as well. Uh, Because when you're the first country to use stamps, I guess you don't need your name on them to differentiate, right? And allegedly, that's why the United Kingdom, the first issuer issuer of postage stamps to this day, does not have United Kingdom uh, on its stamps. Um, For many years, they just had a picture of Queen Elizabeth, as well as the denomination, and and now it's uh, King Charles uh, on the stamps. So... Learn something new, I hope, except for those of you sitting in uh, in London who probably already knew that. Anyway, that's all for today's podcast. Please uh, like, subscribe, refer others, uh, leave comments. Uh, you can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Uh, follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy and visit Enduring Investments, if you have any sort of inflation challenge uh, or if anything that I said is confusing but you think is important to you and that you need help with. And most importantly, as always, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.